Section 36 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Battle of Marathon, B.C. 490. Part 3. Great as the preponderance of the Persian over the Athenian power at that crisis seems to have been, it would be unjust to impute wild rashness to the policy of Miltiades and those who voted with him in the Athenian council of war, or to look on the after-currents of events as the mere fortunate result of successful folly. As before has been remarked, Miltiades, while prince of the Chersonese, had seen service in the Persian armies, and he knew by personal observation how many elements of weakness lurked beneath their imposing aspect of strength. He knew that the bulk of their troops no longer consisted of the hardy shepherds and mountaineers from Persia proper and Kurdistan who won Cyrus's battles, but that unwilling contingents from conquered nations now filled up the Persian muster rolls, fighting more from compulsion than from any zeal in the cause of their masters. He had also the sagacity and the spirit to appreciate the superiority of the Greek armor and organization over the Asiatic, notwithstanding former reverses. Above all, he felt and worthily trusted the enthusiasm of those whom he led. The Athenians whom he led had proved by their newborn valor in recent wars against the neighboring states that liberty and equality of civic rights are brave, spirit-stirring things, and they who, while under the yoke of a despot, had been no better men of war than any of their neighbors, as soon as they were free, became the foremost men of all. For each felt that in fighting for a free commonwealth, he fought for himself, and whatever he took in hand, he was zealous to do the work thoroughly. So the nearly contemporaneous historian describes the change of spirit that was seen in the Athenians after their tyrants were expelled. And Miltiades knew that in leading them against the invading army, where they had Hippias, the foe they most hated, before them, he was bringing into battle no ordinary men and could calculate on no ordinary heroism. As for traitors, he was sure that whatever treachery might lurk among some of the higher-born and wealthier Athenians, the rank and file whom he commanded were ready to do their utmost in his and their own cause. With regard to future attacks from Asia, he might reasonably hope that one victory would inspirit all Greece to combine against a common foe, and that the latent seeds of revolt and disunion in the Persian Empire would soon burst forth and paralyze its energies so as to leave Greek independence secure. With these hopes and risks, Miltiades, on the afternoon of a September day, B.C. 490, 
gave the word for the Athenian army to prepare for battle. There were many local associations connected with those mountain heights, which were calculated powerfully to excite the spirits of the men, and of which the commanders well knew how to avail themselves in their exhortations to their troops before the encounter. Marathon itself was a region sacred to Hercules. Close to them was the fountain of Macaria, who had in days of yore devoted herself to death for the liberty of her people. The very plain on which they were to fight was the scene of the exploits of their national hero, Theseus. And there, too, as old legends told, the Athenians and the Heraclidae had routed the invader Eurystheus. These traditions were not mere cloudy myths or idle fictions, but matters of implicit, earnest faith to the men of that day. And many a fervent prayer arose from the Athenian ranks to the heroic spirits who, while on earth, had striven and suffered on that very spot, and who were believed to be now heavenly powers, looking down with interest on their still beloved country, and capable of interposing with superhuman aid in its behalf. According to old national custom, the warriors of each tribe were arrayed together, neighbor thus fighting by the side of neighbor, friend by friend, in the spirit of emulation and the consciousness of responsibility excited to the very utmost. The war ruler, Callimachus, had the leading of the right wing. The Plataeans formed the extreme left, and Thermistocles and Aristides commanded the center. The line consisted of the heavy-armed spearmen only, for the Greeks, until the time of Iphicrates, took little or no account of light-armed soldiers in a pitched battle, using them only in skirmishes or for the pursuit of a defeated enemy. The panoply of the regular infantry consisted of a long spear, of a shield, helmet, breastplate, greaves, and short sword. Thus equipped, they usually advanced slowly and steadily into action in a uniform phalanx of about eight spears deep. But the military genius of Miltiades led him to deviate on this occasion from the commonplace tactics of his countrymen. It was essential for him to extend his line so as to cover all the practicable ground and to secure himself from being outflanked and charged in the rear by the Persian horse. This extension involved the weakening of his line. Instead of a uniform reduction of its strength, he determined on detaching principally from his center, which, from the nature of the ground, would have the best opportunities for rallying, if broken, and on strengthening his wings, so as to ensure advantage at those points, and he trusted to his own skill and to his soldiers' discipline for the improvement of that advantage into decisive victory. In this order, and availing himself probably of the inequalities of the ground, so as to conceal his preparations from the enemy till the last possible moment, Miltiades drew up the 11,000 infantry whose spears were to decide this crisis in the struggle between the European 
in the Asiatic worlds. The sacrifices by which the favor of heaven was sought and its will consulted were announced to show propitious omens. The trumpet sounded for action, and, chanting the hymn of battle, the little army bore down upon the host of the foe. Then, too, along the mountain slopes of Marathon must have resounded the mutual exhortation which Aeschylus, who fought in both battles, tells us was afterward heard over the waves of Salamis. On, sons of the Greeks, strike for the freedom of your country, strike for the freedom of your children and your wives, for the shrines of your father's gold, and for the sepulchres of your sires. All, all are now staked upon the strife. Instead of advancing at the usual slow pace of the phalanx, Miltiades brought his men on at a run. They were all trained in the exercise of the palestra, so that there was no fear of their ending the charge in breathless exhaustion. And it was of the deepest importance for him to traverse as rapidly as possible the mile or so of level ground that lay between the mountain foot and the Persian outposts, and so to get his troops into close action before the Asiatic cavalry could mount, form, and maneuver against him, or their archers keep him long under fire, and before the enemy's generals could fairly deploy their masses. When the Persians, says Herodotus, saw the Athenians running down on them without horse or bowmen and scanty in numbers, they thought them a set of madmen rushing upon certain destruction. They began, however, to prepare to receive them, and the eastern chiefs arrayed, as quickly as time and place allowed, the varied races who served in their motley ranks. Mountaineers from Hyrcania and Afghanistan, wild horsemen from the steppes of Khorasan, the black archers of Ethiopia, swordsmen from the banks of the Indus, the Oxus, the Euphrates, and the Nile, made ready against the enemies of the great king. But no national cause inspired them except the division of native Persians, and in the large host there was no uniformity of language, creed, race, or military system. Still, among them there were many gallant men under a veteran general. They were familiarized with victory, and in contemptuous confidence their infantry, which alone had time to form, awaited the Athenian charge. On came the Greeks, with one unwavering line of leveled spears, against which the light targets, the short lances, and scimitars of the Orientals offered weak defense. The front rank of the Asiatics must have gone down to a man at the first shock. Still, they recoiled not, but strove by individual gallantry and by the weight of numbers to make up for the disadvantages of weapons and tactics and to bear back the shallow line of the Europeans. In the center, where the native Persians and the Seychelles fought, they succeeded in breaking through the weakened part of the Athenian phalanx and the tribes led by Aristides and Thermistocles were, after a brave resistance, driven back over the plain and chased by the Persians up the valley toward the inner country. There, the nature of the ground gave the opportunity of rallying and renewing the struggle. Meanwhile, the Greek wings, 
where Miltiades had concentrated his chief strength, had routed the Asiatics opposed to them, and the Athenian and Plataean officers, instead of pursuing the fugitives, kept their troops well in hand, and, wheeling round, they formed the two wings together. Miltiades instantly led them against the Persian center, which had hitherto been triumphant, but which now fell back and prepared to encounter these new and unexpected assailants. Aristides and Themistocles renewed the fight with their reorganized troops, and the full force of the Greeks was brought into close action with the Persian and Sacian divisions of the enemy. Datis's veterans strove hard to keep their ground, and evening was approaching before the stern encounter was decided. But the Persians, with their slight wicker shields, destitute of body armor, and never taught by training to keep the even front and act with the regular movement of the Greek infantry, fought at heavy disadvantage with their shorter and feebler weapons against a compact array of well-armed Athenian and Plataean spearsmen, all perfectly drilled to perform each necessary evolution in concert, and to preserve a uniform and unwavering line in battle. In personal courage and in bodily activity, the Persians were not inferior to their adversaries, their spirits were not yet cowed by the recollection of former defeats, and they lavished their lives freely, rather than forfeit the fame which they had won by so many victories. While their rear ranks poured an incessant shower of arrows over the heads of their comrades, the foremost Persians kept rushing forward, sometimes singly, sometimes in desperate groups of ten or twelve, upon the projecting spears of the Greeks, striving to force a lane into the phalanx and to bring their scimitars and daggers into play. But the Greeks felt their superiority, and though the fatigue of a long-continued action told heavily on their inferior numbers, the sight of the carnage that they dealt upon their assailants nerved them to fight still more fiercely on. At last, the previously unvanquished lords of Asia turned their backs and fled, and the Greeks followed striking them down to the water's edge where the invaders were now hastily launching their galleys and seeking to embark and fly. Flushed with success, the Athenians attacked and strove to fire the fleet. But here the Asiatics resisted desperately, and the principal loss sustained by the Greeks was in the assaults on the ships. Here fell the brave war-ruler Callimachus, and the general Cestalos, and the other Athenians of note. Seven galleys were fired, but the Persians succeeded in saving the rest. They pushed off from the fatal shore. But even here the skill of Datis did not desert him, and he sailed round to the western coast of Attica in hopes to find the city unprotected and to gain possession of it from some of the partisans of Hippias. Miltiades, however, saw and counteracted his maneuver, leaving Aristides and the troops of his tribe to guard the spoil and the slain. The Athenian commander led his conquering army by a rapid night march back across the country to Athens. 
and when the Persian fleet had doubled the Cape of Sunium and sailed up to the Athenian harbor in the morning, Datis saw arrayed on the heights above the city the troops before whom his men had fled on the previous evening. All hope of further conquest in Europe for the time was abandoned, and the baffled armada returned to the Asiatic coasts. After the battle had been fought, but while the dead bodies were yet on the ground, the promised reinforcement from Sparta arrived. Two thousand Lacedaemonian spearmen, starting immediately after the full moon, had marched the hundred and fifty miles between Athens and Sparta in the wonderfully short time of three days. Though too late to share in the glory of the action, they requested to be allowed to march to the battlefield to behold the Medes. They proceeded thither, gazed on the dead bodies of the invaders, and then, praising the Athenians and what they had done, they returned to Lacedaemon. The number of the Persian dead was 6,400. Of the Athenians, 192. The number of the Plataeans who fell is not mentioned, but as they fought in the part of the army, which was not broken, it cannot have been large. The apparent disproportion between the losses of the two armies is not surprising when we remember the armor of the Greek spearmen and the impossibility of heavy slaughter being inflicted by sword or lance on troops so armed, as long as they kept firm in their ranks. The Athenian slain were buried on the field of battle. This was contrary to the usual custom, according to which the bones of all who fell fighting for their country in each year were deposited in a public sepulchre in the suburb of Athens called the Ceramicus. But it was felt that a distinction ought to be made in the funeral honors paid to the men of Marathon, even as their merit had been distinguished over that of all other Athenians. A lofty mound was raised on the plain of Marathon, beneath which the remains of the men of Athens who fell in the battle were deposited. Ten columns were erected on the spot, one for each of the Athenian tribes, and on the monumental column of each tribe were graven the names of those of its members whose glory it was to have fallen in the great battle of liberation. The antiquarian Pausanias read those names there six hundred years after the time when they were first graven. The columns have long perished, but the mound still marks the spot where the noblest heroes of antiquity repose. A separate tumulus was raised over the bodies of the slain Plataeans, and another over the light-armed slaves who had taken part and had fallen in the battle. There was also a separate funeral monument to the general to whose genius the victory was mainly due. Miltiades did not live long after his achievement at Marathon, but he lived long enough to experience a lamentable reverse of his popularity and success. As soon as the Persians had quitted the western coasts of the Aegean, he proposed to an assembly of the Athenian people that they should fit out seventy galleys with a proportionate force of soldiers and military stores and place it at his disposal, not telling them whither he meant to lead it, 
but promising them that if they would equip the force he asked for and give him discretionary powers, he would lead it to a land where there was gold in abundance to be won with ease. The Greeks of that time believed in the existence of eastern realms teeming with gold, as firmly as the Europeans of the 16th century believed in El Dorado of the West. The Athenians probably thought that the recent victor of Marathon and former officer of Darius was about to lead them on a secret expedition against some wealthy and unprotected cities of treasure in the Persian dominions. The armament was voted and equipped and sailed eastward from Attica, no one but Metiades knowing its destination until the Greek isle of Paros was reached, when his true object appeared. In former years, while connected with the Persians as prince of the Chersonese, Miltiades had been involved in a quarrel with one of the leading men among the Pereans, who had injured his credit and caused some slights to be put upon him at the court of the Persian satrap Hidarnes. The feud had ever since rankled in the heart of the Athenian chief, and he now attacked Paros for the sake of avenging himself on his ancient enemy. His pretext as general of the Athenians was that the Pereans had aided the armament of Datis with a war galley. The Pereans pretended to treat about terms of surrender, but used the time which they thus gained in repairing the defective parts of the fortifications of their city, and they then set the Athenians at defiance. So far, says Herodotus, the accounts of all the Greeks agree. But the Pereans, in after years, told also a wild legend, how a captive priestess of a Perean temple of the deities of earth promised Miltiades to give him the means of capturing Paros, how, at her bidding, the Athenian general went alone at night and forced his way into a holy shrine near the city gate, but with what purpose it was not known, how a supernatural awe came over him, and in his flight he fell and fractured his leg, how an oracle afterward forbade the Pereans to punish the sacrilegious and traitorous priestess because it was fated that Miltiades should come to an ill end and she was only the instrument to lead him to evil. Such was the tale that Herodotus heard at Paros. Certain it was that Miltiades either dislocated or broke his leg during an unsuccessful siege of the city and returned home in evil plight with his baffled and defeated forces. The indignation of the Athenians was proportionate to the hope and excitement which his promises had raised. Xanthippus, the head of one of the first families in Athens, indicted him before the supreme popular tribunal for the capital offense of having deceived the people. His guilt was undeniable, and the Athenians passed their verdict accordingly. But the recollections of Lemnos and Marathon, and the sight of the fallen general who lay stretched on a couch before them, pleaded successfully in mitigation of punishment, and the sentence was commuted from death to a fine of fifty talents. This was paid by his son, the afterward 
illustrious Simon, Miltiades dying soon after the trial of the injury which he had received at Paros. The melancholy end of Miltiades, after his elevation to such a height of power and glory, must often have been recalled to the minds of the ancient Greeks by the sight of one in particular of the memorials of the great battle which he won. This was the remarkable statue, minutely described by Pausanias, which the Athenians in the time of Pericles caused to be hewn out of a huge block of marble, which it was believed had been provided by Datus to form a trophy of the anticipated victory of the Persians. Phidias fashioned out of this a colossal image of the goddess Nemesis, the deity whose peculiar function was to visit the exuberant prosperity both of nations and individuals with sudden and awful reverses. This statue was placed in a temple of the goddess at Romnus, about eight miles from Marathon. Athens itself contained numerous memorials of her primary great victory. Panenus, the cousin of Phidias, represented it in fresco on the walls of the painted porch, and centuries afterward the figures of Miltiades and Callimachus at the head of the Athenians were conspicuous in the fresco. The tutelary deities were exhibited taking part in the fray. In the background were seen the Phoenician galleys, and nearer to the spectator, the Athenians and the Plataeans, distinguished by their leather helmets, were chasing routed Asiatics into the marshes and the sea. The battle was sculptured also on the Temple of Victory in the Acropolis, and even now there may be traced on the frieze of the figures of the Persian combatants with their lunar shields, their bows and quivers, their curved scimitars, their loose trousers, and Phrygian tiaras. These and other memorials of Marathon were the produce of the meridian age of Athenian intellectual splendor, of the age of Phidias and Pericles. For it was not merely by the generation whom the battle liberated from Epius and Amides that the transcendent importance of their victory was gratefully recognized. Through the whole epoch of her prosperity, through the long Olympiads of her decay, through centuries after her fall, Athens looked back on the day of Marathon as the brightest of her national existence. By a natural blending of patriotic pride with grateful piety, the very spirits of the Athenians who fell at Marathon were deified by their countrymen. The inhabitants of the district of Marathon paid religious rites to them, and orators solemnly invoked them in their most impassioned adjurations before the assembled men of Athens. Nothing was omitted that could keep alive the remembrance of a deed which had first taught the Athenian people to know its own strength by measuring it with a power which had subdued the greater part of the known world. A consciousness thus awakened fixed its character, its station, and its destiny. It was the spring of its later great actions and ambitious enterprises. It was not indeed by one defeat, however signal, that the pride of Persia could be broken, and her dreams of universal empire dispelled. 
Ten years afterward, she renewed her attempts upon Europe on a grander scale of enterprise and was repulsed by Greece with greater and reiterated loss. Larger forces and heavier slaughter than had been seen at Marathon signalized the conflicts of Greeks and Persians at Artemisium, Salamis, Plataea, and the Eurymedon. But mighty and momentous as these battles were, they ranked not with Marathon in importance. They originated no new impulse. They turned back no current of fate. They were merely confirmatory of the already existing bias which Marathon had created. The day of Marathon is the critical epoch in the history of the two nations. It broke forever the spell of Persian invincibility, which had previously paralyzed men's minds. It generated among the Greeks the spirit which beat back Xerxes, and afterward led on Xenophon, Agesilus, and Alexander in terrible retaliation through their Asiatic campaigns. It secured for mankind the intellectual treasures of Athens, the growth of free institutions, the liberal enlightenment of the Western world, and the gradual ascendancy for many ages of the great principles of European civilization. End of section 36. End of the Battle of Marathon.